I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to our podcast today, Tiffany Muller. She is Executive Director of End Citizens United. Welcome back to the program, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tiffany, since we gathered in 2018, how much closer are we to ending Citizens United? Oh, well, I am so glad you asked. And you know what? We are closer because people have uh, joined their voices together and spoken out about a government that they feel like isn't working for them. And that energy helped flip the house in 2018 and led to the For the People Act being H.R. 1, the very first order of business in 2019 in a new Congress. Uh, and then it helped flip the Senate in 2020. And now we have the For the People Act, which is the largest anti-corruption democracy reform bill uh, that we've seen in generations as H.R. 1 in the House, S. 1 in the Senate. It has already passed the House and it's moving through the Senate. We can pass it tomorrow with a vote on the Senate floor. And Alex, this is a really important bill. Let me tell you what it does. First, it protects and expands the right to vote, which we know is under attack right now in this country. Second, it begins to end the dominance of big money in politics. It forces disclosure and transparency, and it empowers small dollar donors, actually mitigating some of the most disastrous effects of the Citizens United ruling. Uh, it cracks down on corruption in both parties, and it ends partisan gerrymandering. So we are very excited about this and about uh, the, the possibility of passing this bill into law, and we're confident we're going to be able to get it done. One of the primary obstacles, if not the most significant impediment, is two United States senators who refuse to go along, at least so far, with the democratic agenda on voting rights and restricting the unlimited influence of corporations on our politics. They are Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Cinema of Arizona. There is a fair amount of consensus within the Democratic Party that these pieces of legislation that you refer to are should be the at the forefront of of their agenda um but isn't it correct that until you get the support of the entire democratic caucus on the senate side this is dead in the water uh, so I, first of all i mean leader schumer has made it clear uh that this that failure is not an option with this bill uh, we are seeing an unprecedented attack on the freedom to vote uh, from Republican legislatures across the country. 361 bills in 47 states. Six of those uh, bills have already passed and been signed into law. And we know more are coming. Um, so we can't afford to wait. And in 2019, we had every single Democratic senator as a co-sponsor of this bill uh, as of today, we have 49 of the 50 Democratic senators as co-sponsors of the bill. 
Um, it, Joe Biden put it in a joint address to Congress just last week saying how critically important it is that we pass this. And uh, we are, it, like I said, failure is not an option. We're confident we're going to get this done. We welcome bipartisan support. We know that voters across the country, Republicans, independents, Democrats across the country want to see this bill signed into law. So we would welcome Republican senator support. But if not, we can't let an arcane rule stand in our way either. Um, we have to get this bill passed. It sounds as though you are optimistic that this will pass. Um, are you suggesting that this is going to pass as a result of Manchin and Cinema budging on their attachment to preserving the filibuster? Or are you suggesting that elements of, of those legislative articles would be incorporated into a reconciliation or some procedure by which only a simple majority is required? I think that there are lots of procedural ways that this could play out, uh, Alex, but I think the most important piece for all of your listeners to know uh, is that in the past 20 years, there's been four times where HR1 and S1 were the same bill, where both the House and the Senate said this is our most important piece of legislative priority. Uh, and all four times, that's become law. That bill has become law. And that's we are confident that we are going to have uh, that same outcome this time. Um, but it's going to take everyone who's listening and everyone who cares about these issues to continue to speak up and to to lend their voices to this effort. Um, every single senator, Republican or Democrat, uh, needs to know how vitally important this is to the people listening, uh, that they want their government to work for them again, right? This bill is really about who gets to have power and say in our government. And, and uh, you know, this bill is about giving that power back to the people. And the folks who are standing in the way and uh, blocking that, like Senator Mitch McConnell, they want to uphold the status quo because it's what works out best for them and for their special interest donors. Um, and the American people have really had enough, right? We've seen 10 years of gridlock and dysfunction where we can't address the most pressing problems in our country, from gun violence to prescription drug prices to creating an economy that works for everyone. And so we have to break that tie between money and policy outcomes. And the For the People Act is how we're going to get that done. Even in the best case scenario in which For the People passes, how is that tangibly going to change the cost of prescription drugs or you know, any particular issue in which the dominance, as you describe it, of big money in politics has made life harder in America and made their made the American experience more immobile, less equitable, and you know, less of any kind of salvageable safety net. Well, first, uh it, it does a number of things, uh, Alex, but first, it actually says, look, if you're going to spend money to influence our elections, that money all has to be disclosed and transparent. Um, and we have seen the anonymous dark money that's pouring into our elections uh, increase uh, over the past decade. Um, and with that has also, there's been loopholes that allowed in foreign money 
national security risks, et cetera. And look, I, every, everybody has seen these ads, right? Where uh, an ad goes up that's to influence the election and it comes from some innocuous sounding group like Americans for Better Puppies. Uh, and we, in order to be able to evaluate claims in an election, we have to know who's paying for it and why. And so what we've seen in states that have implemented strict disclosure laws is that those strict disclosure laws have actually pulled some of that money out of the system. Because a lot of these donors and these corporate special interests and these billionaires who are trying to buy our elections, they don't want uh, to have their name out there associated with this. So some of that money, just through disclosure and transparency, will come out of the system. Let me tell you another way that this uh, starts to combat big money. This bill would actually empower small dollar donors, and it would uh, allow public officials and candidates who are running for office uh, to try to fuel their campaigns through small dollar donors, uh, which actually breaks that tie between just the biggest donors, the mega donors who are trying to buy elections and buy access and influence, and actually democratizes uh, our system more, which is what we should want. And it actually opens the door for candidates who in the past haven't been able to run for office to be able to have the resources to run and to win more women candidates, more candidates of color. Um, so those are just two of the ways that this bill begins to help get some of that money out of politics. We see the, the lobbying structures in D.C. as inhibiting the well-being of the American people. And it's just still not clear to me that with the passage of that legislation, there would be tangible economic improvement. So let's contemplate the best case scenario in which the legislation passes. How ought the Democrats and specifically President Biden, how should they hold accountable um, the, the promise of this legislation uh, to deliver tangible improvement in the lives of the American people? Hey, yeah, I think, uh, first of all, let's take just the voting section of this bill. Uh, when more people are able to vote and when more people vote, their voices are heard. And right now we're facing a situation where the where voices are being locked out of the system. And so this bill actually, you know, makes it easier to register to vote. Make sure that anyone who wants to can vote by mail. Uh, make sure to put in place early voting. And when people vote, elected officials have to be more accountable to those voters, right? So that's number one. Number two, it ends the partisan gerrymandering. And you and I know you know this, Alex, but for all your viewers, gerrymandering um, actually works to take away people's voice as well by either packing them all into a district so that their voice doesn't have as much power or uh, spreading them out across many districts so that their voice uh, doesn't have as much power. And by creating fair maps and getting rid of the map manipulation that we have seen, uh, we create districts that are more competitive. And again, where elected officials have to be responsive to the people and not the, just their special interest donors. 
And then when politicians are responsive to small dollar donors rather than the big moneyed interests, then we know they actually have to begin to solve problems that those people want solved, right? So everything from, let's take climate change, for instance, right? Uh, where if, if public officials are working for the people, then they know that the people believe that the climate uh, change is a crisis that needs to be addressed and that there needs to be policy solutions for. And if they are responsive to those people through voting, through fair districts, through uh, small dollar donors, uh, rather than just the big gas and oil lobby and big gas and oil campaign contributions, then you actually can create policy change. You certainly have the example of civil rights legislation that expanded democratic participation. But over time, that did not translate into the economic empowerment of black and brown voters, for example, who we know have been disproportionately impacted by the nature of the American economy today. And, and of course, the pandemic specifically. In, in the best case scenario, you're saying that these pieces of legislation will facilitate a climate in which the incentives have have changed. Now, one possibility is that the Supreme Court of the United States determines that those incentives ought to remain the way they were. And um, based on the Republican appointed majority that is that that ruled in favor of, of Citizens United, but also is more expansive now with the addition of the Trump appointees, you're dealing with the, the real possibility that um, even if there's aspects of severability in legislation, that this comes back to the Supreme Court and the court rules that for the people is unconstitutional or important provisions of these pieces of legislation are unconstitutional. So knowing that that's a real possibility, the only way to kind of, uh, if you will, circumvent that and ensure the viability of legislation is to have an independent court that is not going to make more blunders like its decision in Citizens United. And that is anything but assured. Yeah, that we need a a court that isn't captured by corporate special interest. That they, I could not agree with you more. Um, and we know that right now the dark money uh, and the corporate special interests have actually fueled this rightward leaning and kind of you know frankly corporate takeover of the court. Uh, there has been two hundred and fifty million dollars of dark money spent to get conservative justices uh, on the courts and to stack the courts with those conservative justices. And we saw that play out in the uh, Merrick Garland fight, the Gorsuch fight, the Kavanaugh fight, the Coney Barrett fight, right? And uh, we've seen Republicans be quite uh, happy to change the size of the court from nine to eight when it suited their needs and then back up to nine when it suited their needs. And we we could not agree more that we need a court that is uh, going to be independent and fair and um, understands the tie between money and corruption. And, you know, 
we know that the For the People Act would make government more representative, more responsive, uh, would lead to, you know, hopefully more functioning governing, and that that helps us be able to change the court as well. These things are definitely interlocking. The disclosure aspects and getting that dark money out of what has been fueling the confirmations of these justices is an important part of that. The For the People Act also has a judicial uh, code of ethics for Supreme Court justices, which has never existed before and absolutely should exist. Um, so there are definitely ties between those those two pieces because you know the the court's decision in both Citizens United and uh, Shelby v. Holder um, have really just damage the foundations of our democracy. And that is what we're all fighting to rebuild day in and day out. How do you construct the legislation now to have enough wherewithal to be preserved? Because it does not appear that the, the agenda of the Democrats is to simultaneously expand the size of the court to have a more representative court that would uphold, you know, the, the right of Congress to make the changes that it wants to assert in that legislation. So it, it seems to me that you're really shooting yourself in the foot if you aren't approaching these two things simultaneously because the John Lewis Voting Rights Act or the For the People legislation um, that they can quickly be overturned. And, and I don't hear Leader Schumer talking about the importance of the legislation surviving and that that's tactically part of the strategy. Well, I think it's a good question and one that, of course, everyone is concerned about given the court's makeup right now. Um, you know, there, I am not a constitutional legal scholar. Thankfully, there are many amazing constitutional legal scholars working on exactly that question and working with uh, everyone from Leader Schumer to Senator Klobuchar and Senator Merkley, who are leading this bill in the Senate, Congressman Sarbanes uh, and House leadership um, to make sure that that this is constructed and that a congressional record is built uh, so that it can withstand court scrutiny. Um, and they, they go far more into the weeds than I will, but I will tell you that, you know, first of all, a lot of the pieces in this bill have been upheld by the courts, uh, especially the disclosure and transparency pieces, the small dollar donor pieces, um, all of those pieces have been upheld by the courts before. There's also severability throughout the, the bill so that, you know, if you challenge one part of the law and, and win on that part, it does not knock down the entire law. Um, it, so I know that constitutional legal scholars are constantly working on this with the appropriate folks on the Hill um, and that we, that it's being constructed in a way that also looks at what court precedent has been in the past. If you were to consider the timing or the timetable for the passage of the legislation, um, what, what do you think, even in your 
more idealistic or bullish scenario, what is the most realistic timetable you think that this can actually happen? Well, I think we have heard Leader Schumer uh, talk about this, Ron Klain from the White House as well, um, that uh, the goal is to have this passed before the August recess. Uh, part of that is uh, to make sure that it has time to be implemented and that the election authorities in states have time to implement it in time for the 2022 election. Um, so we're really looking at a you know, kind of mid to end summer deadline to get this passed. And I am optimistic, Alex. I really do believe that we are facing a crisis of confidence in our in our government right now, and that voters, Democrats, Republicans, Independents want this bill passed. Our polling shows 83% of Americans want this passed, including over 70% of Republicans. And uh, so this is a really important step uh, to, to increasing their faith and trust in government. It's an important step on the journey to overturning Citizens United. Uh, and most of all, it's an important step toward getting the money out of politics. So I am optimistic. You're, you're optimistic. And you think that the timetable you just described will will uh, will hold up that um, by the August recess, notwithstanding skepticism from the two Democratic Senate members that I mentioned, um, not a whole lot of other skepticism within the party, your wager would be that this is delivered before August. Uh with everyone who's listening's help, we all have to, I can't stress this enough. Um, I do believe that this is very doable. I am optimistic about it. Um, but for folks who care about this issue, we also uh, need your voices in this fight because that is the only way that we've been able to even get to where we're at today, where we have the potential to pass this. And we're really facing a moral crisis in this country around the attacks on voting rights and needing to to deliver a, uh, a mitigation to those attacks. Um, so we need everyone who's listening to to join us in fighting to get this bill passed. And you can go to actforthepeople.com. Again, that's actforthepeople.com uh, and sign up to help. We have text banks going, we have phone banks going, you can uh, call your senator, you can write a letter to the editor, um, but mostly just uh, we need your voice and about how important this is. So I am optimistic, Alex. I do believe we can get it done by the August recess, uh, but I would also implore everyone listening to get involved. Tiffany Muller, Executive Director of N Citizens United, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been a pleasure.